This episode of Troxel is supported by Avail. Content is more than Revit families. If it's digital, Avail can handle it. Learn more at getavail.com. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have a conversation with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the co-evolution of architecture and technology. In this episode, I welcome Michael Ehrman. Michael is a full-tenured professor at Virginia Tech, where he teaches design studio, building systems, and materials and methods of construction. He's also the creator of Amber Books Animated Architecture Licensure Prep. He's won 14 awards for his research, teaching, and design work, including two design awards for an edition made from bubble wrap that he put on his own house. In this episode, we discuss intuition, meaning, the necessity for architects to go deep, how the profession is ignoring the market forces, and we have a critical conversation about architectural education and practice. This was a fantastic conversation with Michael, and I hope that you'll not only find value in it for yourself, but that she'll help add value to the profession that we all love by sharing it with your network. In addition, if you are enjoying the show, I hope you'll leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help support the show, and it helps broaden the reach of conversations like these in my attempt to elevate the industry. I would also appreciate you visiting the sponsors who are helping to make this episode possible. And so without further ado, I bring you Michael Ehrman. Michael, welcome. It's great to see you. Thank you, Evan. It is good to see you. Yeah, I think the last time we, we connected in Chicago, obviously, that was uh, that was really cool to meet you there for the first time. And, and I found out that you've been listening to, to my other podcast for quite a while. So that was exciting for me, too, because I'm definitely aware of of you in the architecture world as well. So this is that was a great time to actually meet you. Long time listener, first time caller, Evan. Yeah, <laughs> so I, I think um, if you remember right, I think I was just telling you that I'm an acoustician by trade, and that's my training and my background. I'm an architectural acoustician, and just then uh, there was a drumline, and a, a, a high school drumline started coming by and and drowned us out, so we never got that's to right. talk. <laughs> that's right. We were attempting to record an interview in in the booth, yeah, <laughs> and then the drumline came by, and it was like. Yeah, these acoustics, they, they, it's just not working for us. So, so Michael, tell us, you know, you, you are a man of many things. Uh, you, you're kind of a Renaissance man, I guess, in that, in that kind of way of thinking. You've got your teaching, you've got the Amber book. I'm sure you're doing, I know you're doing projects as well. I, I saw this amazing project that you showed me, the, the glass house. Uh, so, so give, us, give us an idea of who you are, where you're coming from, what you're doing. Oh, sure. You're very kind. Um, I don't know if I'm so much of a Renaissance man. I think of myself more as like, you know how um, when when a rapper talks or sings, they're always talking about how they had all these doubters, like they're always trying to prove the doubters wrong, right? So like, whenever I feel like I'm getting pigeonholed in one area, I tend to um, have like an instinctual, um, I don't know, every 10 years oh, or so yeah. I'll change my, yeah, <laughs> I, can, I can do that too. <laughs> You know, I, I have an architecture degree uh, and I'm a licensed architect and, 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 and I love design. That's my first love. But uh, when I was at 
in architecture school, I was also studying architectural acoustics and I was super interested in, in that, but I also was interested in not being pigeonholed. And I always felt the whole time, like, you know, I had to prove that I wasn't just the tech guy. And, and, and I don't believe that there's a, I don't believe in the fiction that, that you have to be either kind of, you know, math oriented or design oriented. You can you know, see no reason why you can't do see both. And actually I see lots of people uh, who are both in, uh, in my classes uh, at Virginia Tech where I teach architecture and have for 20, this is my 22nd year. And we can get into that. Oh, let's just get into that now, Evan. So, so like, if you kind of think of a, if you think of a, if you think of one of those kind of like four boxes where you have like a, you know, on the Y axis, maybe you have more or less math oriented and on the X axis, you have more or less design oriented. And I know by doing this, I'm betraying my, you know, I'm, I'm showing my math orientation, but, um, you know, there's four quadrants, right? There's people who are, um, who are engineering oriented and people who are, and not design oriented. There are people who are both. There are people who are neither. There are people who are the other one, whatever. And so I think what winds up happening is you look at that. And in my experience, I found people get distributed in all four boxes. So you have people who are good at both. You have people who are good at design, but not engineering. People who are strong in engineering, but not design. And people who are weak at both. And the ones who are weak at both kind of keep quiet. <laughs> so, you know, they're kind of fade away. And so two thirds of the remaining are one are, are in the strong in design and, uh, and weak in engineering or strong in engineering and weak in design. And so, um, and so they say, oh, you have to be good in one or the other because it fits their worldview. But actually, I have found that it, it scatters pretty nicely. Uh, but anyhow, so, um, so I just, you know, all I want to do was show that I really could do design and, and you know, I really was you know, kind of into that stuff. And, and then I went and took a job at a, I got some job offers, both for architecture firms and for, and for acoustics firms. And I took the job at an acoustics firm and I was in their architecture department. I was so excited to be the architecture guy in the acoustics firm until I got there and I realized that was kind of a glorified drafting job. And I knew how to do the acoustics stuff, but no one really knew that. So then I wound up swinging the other way, right now, you know, kind of like, you know, tell people whoever they'd listen that I was good at the other stuff. And, and I, and then I was good at acoustics and I kind of did that. And then I came to teaching here at Virginia tech and, and I was pigeonholed at first as a, you know, building systems a, a, a professor. And, and then I kind of went swung back the other way again and said, no, no, I can do the, the design stuff too. So I would say it's more comes from um, a place of insecurity than a, than a place of confidence <laughs> as a Renaissance man. Interesting. But so, yeah, so I, I was an acoustician for some years. I, I, I'm an architect and licensed architect i uh we make animations for folks who are studying for the building uh, for the uh, architecture the architect's license uh, registration exam the licensure exam for architects yeah that there's so many things in there that one of the things i think we were we were having a a back and forth on when we were in chicago was this idea about expertise versus generalists right expert you know you've got the experts and the generalists and and what's interesting is yeah and and i was i was kind of pushing more on the generalist side and you you were like pushing back into the expertise side i call it the myth of the noble, noble generalist go ahead finish what you're saying well i'm just thinking like that this idea that of these quadrants really starts to get you into more of the expertise thing and the closer you are to maybe the center of of that entire thing that like you can dabble in all these different things and be good enough to be dangerous in those and and that probably falls more into the category of of generalists I think that's fair. I think, you know, everything I just told you kind of implies that I would like to be seen as a generalist, uh-huh. um, but in defense, <laughs> but, but, but in defense of specialists, you know, I, you know, if we, if we look at any other profession, you know, if you, you know, God forbid got, you know, I don't know, uh, prostate cancer, you would go to the urological oncologist. You wouldn't go to your family doctor. 
every other profession has moved towards specialists. And so it is a little bit of kind of the, the typical architect's hubris to be like, no, no, but except for us, like even as buildings get more and more complex and as a technology that, that designs them and runs them gets more and comp- more and more complex, we somehow have lamented some lost time where we were that where you know when we were in charge of everything. But you know, the doctors used to used to be one family doctor in the town that was in charge of your prostate cancer. And 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 it's not that way anymore. And so, you know, I, I would I just would I would just push back on the idea that there's something noble specifically about being a generalist, despite the fact that I just kind of push for <laughs> I just push for shaping my narrative for so that, you know, so that I'm seen as a generalist who can who can bounce back and forth. Well, the interesting thing to me about it is I think you need all of it, right? And especially in a larger firm where you're doing these massive projects that are highly technical, very complex, and you do need, it's funny, you look at the roster of who's on the team and there are so many consultants, right? You've got the acoustics consultant, you've got the technology consultant, you've got all the different engineering disciplines, you've got, you know, environmental consultant, depending on where the project is, you could have a completely different set of consultants from this project to that project. And we, I think architects are a little bit averse to that risk, right? I mean, that's, that's in air quotes because we're a lot averse to all those risks of, of knowing all of those things. And so how, I mean, it, you're teaching at Virginia Tech, you're teaching these students and um, a lot of the schools are design schools. They're teaching people to become design specialists and there are very few design positions in the world of architecture when it comes to down to it, unless you're going to start your own firm and then you're going to become a generalist, right? Because you're going to do it all. Or you're going to hire a team that comes in and fills in those pockets that you're missing on. Because I, I, I know one thing is that it's torture for, for me to have to do accounting, right? It's a, as an example, or project management, but I want to do design because that's what I'm really good at. And the other stuff really degrades my quality of life. And so I actually do want to hire somebody who's passionate about that because they're going to fire on all cylinders in that expertise. So it, it is, I do think you need all of it. I just don't, it's so hard in an educational system to teach for one of those things or for two or three of those things when it's actually like on these teams, there's just so many. That's a good point. I mean, probably the, the thing that all of those consultants have in common is they're all brought in too late <laughs> and the design process to be as much, much as, uh, to be <laughs> as helpful as they probably should be. Right. And, and it's not oh. because the arch- it's not because I, I don't believe that it's because the architect doesn't want the, the, the legal risk. It's because the architect wants to design it without the input of all these people because design by committee well, sucks. Well, there's right? that too. It sucks as a process and it yeah. sucks as a product. And so, so we want to be, we want to be in control of it. And what we want to do is we want to tell the lighting consultant to make it work afterward. And we want to tell the code consultant to make it work afterward. And certainly the acoustical consultant to make it work afterward. And, and so, um, this is, a, this is one of the, you know, one of the kind of, you know, I don't know if it's a minor or major challenge for the, for the, for the profession as I see it is, you know, if you're going to pay all these people, bring them in early enough to do good, but how do you do that and still, you know, keep control. And I got to think that, that architects, you know, because like you were talking about, like, I don't like project management either. I hate project management and I'm, I, you know, I don't really like accounting that much either. And so, uh, you know, I, I see where you're coming from for sure. I, I wonder, I, I wonder if, I, I wonder if we're going to, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating thing because we're, as architects and certainly as educators in the academy, we're always kind of saying, look, don't be nostalgic when it comes to form making. You know, we're, we're all, I think almost every, every one of your listeners who, you know, maybe didn't graduate from Miami or Notre Dame would, would be on board with that idea that, you know, we should not be nostalgic for form making in architecture. We don't, you know, we don't need any more faux castles uh, or, you know, neo-colonial 
but um, somehow where it's okay to be nostalgic for this, you know, this kind of bygone era uh, where the architect was in charge of everything, which I frankly doubt. Uh, I'm not sure how long that era lasted, frankly. And moreover, I were for some reason also, and just kind of as a somewhat aside, we're encouraged to be kind of nostalgic for some era, some fictional era that existed, but it never did exist, where where walls in particular were one thing all the way through. So there's this kind of like, oh, if it's you know, like if it's concrete all the way through, then you know, it's honest and it's showing the same thing on both sides. But there's several problems with that idea of stone or you know, this kind of yeah, this kind of like it's a, it's a trap, right? So. So it's a trap for several reasons. One is there never was that era there. You know, I mean, if, you know, if you look at how Roman construction happened, they'd have masonry and masons two, you know, two widths of masonry and they'd put fill in the middle and it was looked like it was the same thing all the way across. Or if you look at an, you know, a detail of an auto building now, it's two, it's two pores of concrete and there's insulation in between it, but there's great effort that goes to hiding that, you know, hiding that fact. And so the idea that these things are completely honest or something and that, and that somehow there was a time when, and there was that purity. And then just to kind of, you know, take it one step farther, I'm a little disappointed that our, of architect's fixation on the wall anyway, especially the exterior wall, because it's one of the only times where the architect gets fooled in the same way the lay person does, where you're saying like, look, you know, a lay person will say, oh, that's a brick house or that's a stone house or a metal building. And architects will do that too. And we'll kind of ignore the, I mean, if a building thought of itself, I think it would think of itself as a foundation and a roof. There's so much more problems that can happen. And, you know, yet the architect is always kind of fixated on the, the exterior finish of the wall. But I kind of get that, too, because of the, the outsized role in elevation. Of you, you totally sparked a, a memory in my in my brain when you when talking about the hiding stuff and like going to great lengths to hide the fact that these things are made up of really complex assemblies of different materials. And then you go through all this rigmarole to, to make it look like one thing when it's actually quite a few other things, but I remember it specifically on a, on a large higher education project and that the client did not want to see the structure anywhere. And it was a brace frame building. So, I mean, you can kind of understand why at some point, like they don't want to see the braces, but like columns, <clears throat> anything and, and going through the great lengths of these enormous cavity walls to hide the structure just to appease one person on the administration of that college who is never going to be inside that building, like never, right? They're not the user and and they're just on the kind of in the approval process as a stakeholder. It's really interesting to see the pressures on architects to please their clients and provide the service that their client is paying for, for some thing that's basically equivalent to like, I don't like purple, right? It's, it's, it's really interesting to see all these various pressures on architects to do things that that go beyond like what the architect would do. But it's really about synthesizing all of the inputs from all the people in the jurisdictions, the HJs, the, the site, the environment, like everything into one final solution. And how like, man, this seriously is a team sport. But not only is it a team sport from the, the people doing the work, but also for like taking the input from various other teams to make that thing a reality it's great it's it's actually crazy that it happens at all it's so complex. that's super interesting it actually might be a fun I, I know it's kind of limiting from an architecture design point of view but that may be a fun design prompt from a, a studio an architecture studio point of view um, i'm always looking for ways to reduce the number of uh variables you know, if you have a big, like right now I'm assigning a fairly big project and the students are, it's an integrative studio. So the students are responsible 
for not only design, but also for uh, structure and, and materials and methods of assembly and for building systems and, and for materiality and for code research and so forth. And, you know, I, I really work hard to kind of back to that generalist idea. I work hard to kind of make the project so that there, so that the, there's an expectation that it's, it's necessary, but not sufficient to design to code and to, you know, with the reasonable structural party, but that you'll be evaluated. Your goal is to make something beautiful. Uh, even though it has to work, but having to work, you don't get any points for having to work. But in order to do that, if I'm going to say, that's if I'm table stakes, <laughs> right, right. It's table stakes. That's exactly right. That's a, that's a really good way to put it. I think I may use that. And so it's table stakes to make sure it all works. And then it has to be beautiful. That's what you're, that's what you're going to be evaluated on or meaningful or, or iterative or, uh, or, uh, or there has to be an intensity or there has to be an intention. You know, there, there needs to be something, there needs to be something there or many things there that give it meaning. And, you know, kind of giving meaning in a complex world might be, you know, the best way to describe what we do. And, and so when you do that in, you know, as you were talking about these teams of people that, that are assigned to make a project, but now you're taking a student who has less experience than a practitioner, obviously, and you're, and you're, you're saying, okay, in 15 weeks with, you know, and you have other courses too, but in 15 weeks, we want you to make a, we want you at the most, uh, that's if you only have one assignment during that semester, we want you to make a building that does all those things. And that not only does all those things, but can convey all those things. And that is beautiful. And so one of the, one of the ways I've been able to do that, I think fairly successfully is to uh, create limitations of any kind um, so that people aren't struggling with, you know, they can make something beautiful without having to decide, for instance. So the project that my current studio is assigned is um, it's a slot building. So the form is decided. It's a zero lot line slot building. So, and it's got a limited height. So it's the box is decided. So then, you know, it becomes about the overhead plane and the sectional quality and the spatial quality, the details and the, and the elevation and, and, and kind of, you know, how it fits in from an urbanistic point of view, daylighting, that kind of thing. So, so I can kind of control that. And the idea of, you know, the idea of saying, okay, the client wants you to, you know, wants to make the structure invisible, maybe a little bit liberating in some ways. Uh, in that in that context that's super interesting i had that exact same project when i was in second year it was an infill project so the box was defined the client was an artist you could pick what kind of artist they were they could be a sculpturist they could be glass you know whatever it is and then you would design and i remember the case studies were adolf los because of the sectional quality that you mentioned right it's like coming up with ways to get daylighting deep into the building all of those things that you just mentioned it's so like that these things don't really like the problems are still the problems. That's interesting that there's, and, and, and what's also interesting about that project, I thought, I mean, cause it's vivid in my mind is how many possibilities there are. Oh my, everybody's going to come up with a different solution every semester, every year for 30 years. And you're never going to see the same thing twice. It's so interesting. It's true. That's why, um, that's why I'm a big fan of intuition as an expression of architecture, because you know, what will happen is students and frankly, professionals will come, will like, they'll become like, you know, post hoc lawyers after the fact, kind of deciding what the, what the true reason they'd make it, you know, they, they think they have to make an excuse for a reason for every move they made. <laughs> and in reality, that's ridiculous. You can't possibly, you're making what the early stages of the design you're making, I don't know what, two, 300,000 decisions a minute, you know, in the first couple hours of a project. And there's no way to have, have a, even a if you don't think you are. Of course you are, you know, you're it's like driving, something driving. Now that has so many. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, even when you're driving, you're making probably a few hundred decisions a second, you know? So the idea that somehow we need to, 
and in school, especially that, you know, this kind of ridiculous idea that we need to have a justification for every single move we make is insane. It's, it's, it's not only insane, it's dishonest because those who do have those justifications, they did it for other reasons, often intuition and or often expediency or often they just weren't thinking of a third option. And, and, um, and then they, after the fact, go in and say, this is why I did it. But of course that's ridiculous. So, uh, you know, I, I kind of embrace the idea that we ought to have a direction. There ought to be a, um, about our set of prior design priorities you know this project is about the you know about where daylight and structure meet or this project is about verticality and uh and dematerialization or you know whatever whatever the the kind of idea the architectural ideas i think a lot of times a project can be about something that's really hard to put into words maybe you know you show an image of a of a painting or of another architecture a piece of architecture work or, or a piece of industrial design you say this is what this project's about it's kind of this you know this idea of these interlocking pieces but it's not really interlocking in terms of the word interlocking it's much more like this and you show you know some you know some detail that Zumtor did in some railing or something and then uh, and then that becomes what the idea of the project is so i'm not suggesting that it's, it's super important that there be a dry a driver um a thesis an idea an, an intention driving your project so i think that's super important especially in a big project where you have lots of people working on it everyone has to be working the same you know rowing in the same same direction i'm suggesting that the decision to you know the decision to put the balcony on you know on this window and not that window there does not have to be a reason behind that there just has to be an idea that there's going to be outdoor living incorporated into the facade of the building and that's good enough and you don't have to then take that to well it's going to be on this this one because when you're approaching the building from this side that's ridiculous it's usually not true it's usually just added on after the fact it's 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 a, a great point i think this idea of the celebrating kind of that intuition is also important and that doesn't seem to happen a whole lot because we live in a world where everything must be justified and i think that's only getting more and more so right because we look at we look at all the software that's being developed for environmental uh, you know analysis on projects and and basically it gets to the point where if you if you don't make a reason for it it's going to get ve'd out of the real building right when it's a real project and so if you, I, I remember a same project as, as that, as the one I was just speaking about, about the structure, it was like, we had these shading fins on the exterior of the building. They were the very first target to under the VE kind of line items, like let's get rid of those things. Right. And it was like, well, you can't because the energy model now depends on them. And like, I totally did that on purpose, right? Because I never wanted those things to go away. And so we tied it to a, a justifiable reason why they could not go away. And we had to cut somewhere else. Man, the balancing act that is architecture is is pretty insane. And, and so I, I really love your idea, though, of saying you can't define the the idea with a word necessarily, or it, I like this idea of, of being able to explain it with a picture because it architecture isn't all about the check boxes that say it does this, it does this, it does this. It is the meaningful feeling that people get when they use the building. I hope like that's, that's real architecture. It's something that not only performs, but it also gives meaning. And can every building do that? Of course not. Can every space in a building do that? Probably not, right? So, but but there are moments where, and I think that's what you kind of get good at as you become an architect, at least the ones who do a lot of buildings, right? Not Not just the special cases for the ultra rich, but you do have moments in buildings 
where there's a lot of benign space. And then there are these moments that you pass through and that you see and that you experience. And then they do give meaning to your, your day-to-day life on campus or in that office or whatever those things are that, that still makes that building have an impact on you and the community and the user groups and all of those things. But can it be everything all the time? I don't think so. Like that's not the world we live in either for the most part, public buildings more so than, than, than not. Yeah, I mean, to to the listener of of this podcast, if you work in a firm of at least 10 people and you can't identify the box checker in your firm, then you are the box checker in your firm. I mean, there's a, there is a, there is a, there is a, there is a, a, uh, I mean, box checking, there's nothing worse than box checking, right? Because it's a misappropriation of the concept of efficiency as if beauty has no value just because we can't quantify it easily. You know, so you don't want to, you don't want to fall, you don't want to fall sucker to the, 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 the fallacy that, that if it can't be measured easily, it doesn't have value. Um, or if it can't be given a number concretely, it doesn't have value. But to your point about the fins, that's super interesting on two levels, because on one level, it's interesting because that is always the challenge and probably always has been the challenge is to, is to make something as you did in that example, make something so integrated into the design that it can't be easily VE'd out where there's not going to, there's not going to be a line item that someone can just cross out and, you know, show their boss, look, I just saved $75,000 by not having these armatures to hold up the fins coming out of the building. But the second, you know, so, you know, trying to figure out, and I love the way you did it, kind of saying, well, the whole energy model depends on it. That's really interesting. <laughs> usually, usually what I hear is, you know, trying to make it so that basically it, you, you can't imagine the building without it, right? The fins are also the, you know, are also the, the radio antenna or something like that, that, that has, that's in the program. Um, but there's this kind of like, maybe this, like, I don't know, this kind of second layer where the promise was always that the promise of BIM was always that, okay, uh, we, the designers are going to give you the software because the software is now going to have basically a spreadsheet behind it. We're not going to be designing in a spreadsheet. We can't see it, but there's a spreadsheet, right? So we're giving some of the control over. And the promise was always that in return, we were going to get some information back in real time as we designed. And man, did that second part of the promise take a long time to come. And even still, it's really disappointing to me. I mean, it should be easier than it is when you're designing in BIM to make a decision and to see in real time what the energy or cost impact or code impact is going to be in that project. And it's been really, at least from my point of view on the academy side, I'm not, I'm not steeped in the everyday profession as much as I would like to be, but I have been really disappointed that we have given up the, we have given up a whole bunch of decisions. Uh, to the default of the of the BIM model of the BIM software, rather not even the model, the BIM software, but we have not. It's taken a while, and we're only just now finally starting to get in return uh, something where we can make a decision and say, "Oh, if I put this window over here instead of on this wall instead of that wall, look at that. That saves you know X BTUs per year or kilobtus per year." Yeah. I guess. <laughs> get technical i i just i feel like that the bim software forces you to make so many decisions so early that the kind of things that you're talking about you're not ready to make those decisions yet and i mean in some cases yeah you totally want to be able to quantify it but at the same time you don't know what those things are yet and does does the model know what's inside and outside sometimes right and so exterior materials versus interior materials i mean it's like there's so many times as an architect when you show it to the client in black and white because you don't want to talk about color or materiality yet. But at the same time, they want to know how much it costs. And it's like, 
we don't even know what it is yet, right? And so there, there is kind of this constant tug of war internally about what do we, we could be three steps ahead and we, we dial it back to show them because we're not ready to go there yet. We, we, we haven't made these other, de- we haven't run these other decisions through the process yet that we've kind of made internally and we're throwing it over the net to say, huh, what do you think? Because those, whatever they think is going to re-impact where we're at. It is an iterative kind of looping process. Yeah. Super interesting. So you're saying the profession that those in the, in the profession are being forced to make decisions and then and then keep it, but their their ten, tentative decisions for cost are just because that software wants them. And you're like, all right, you know, it's drywall for now. Generic walls, yeah. And then gen- generic <laughs> wall, right? Generic walls. I wonder if there's a software solution to that because that does seem like something where where you could you can imagine a world where the software could you know where artificial intelligence you know could kind of make decisions for you. That you can change later. Again, the problem with that, of course, is every placeholder always winds up being permanent. I mean, like unless again, unless there's pushback from a, you know a, a structural engineer or something <laughs> That's like that. That's a great term. But these placeholders always wind up becoming permanent. So you say, well, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with that room. I'm just going to do it like this, and I'll, I'll come back to it. But it, it, everything else gets all the other puzzle pieces kind of work around it. And you're like, well, you know, and it, you don't even think well, they about build it on top of that. Yeah, they build on top of it, and then you can't change it. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it is kind of a, an interesting an interesting problem. I mean, let's talk about the, the the idea of of software in school. So so before we hit record, you were talking about like Virginia Tech's um, approach to teaching or not teaching software, and I know a lot of schools are kind of constantly reevaluating what they should teach versus what they shouldn't and why, right? And and you had maybe four different reasons about kind of why things are the way they are. Maybe could you go through those? Sure, of course. I mean, of course, the, you know, when, when, when we, you know, when we speak to people in the profession, they're very keen on having us train people for their first year. So, you know, they want, they want us to do the training. And in fact, if you were to look on the job boards right now, you would see a lot of, a lot of openings for architects with three years minimum experience because they want someone else to train the architects. That's a huge problem in the profession. And it's a, it's a, it's a market forces issue. It's not, I don't think it's necessarily evil architecture firms, but as a profession, I would think that we have got to get a little bit better at at kind of incorporating some of the training in, you know, as part of the business model and not kind of, you know, leaving it to other people to train, train your architects if you want to hire. But yeah, there, there are, you know, there are at least four, four problems with that model of saying we want the architecture schools to do the work of training the architects. In, in, in our, you know, in this case right now would typically be Revit. Um, and the first is that we're not as good as the firms at training people in software. I mean, there's, we will never be as good as the firms at training people in software because software, just like we'll never be as good at training people in pro practice. Because if you're not dealing with contracts or you're not dealing with the software every day, if you're not kind of working the software, if you're just learning it in the absence of something specific, um, it becomes quite inductive it's a kind of a you know a general to specific way to teach and that's not how we learn we learn by you know going from the specific to the general so if you are go to a firm and you say okay you have to do it in bim and and go um, that's the best way to learn bim um, so that's the first problem is that we're not as good as the firms uh, the second problem is you know if i were to line up every project at virginia tech you could probably almost without fail identify the students who started in BIM. 
um, maybe the among the weakest projects because there's this kind of within there's like we just talked about there's so much of the design that's given over to the default um, students especially don't know how the gutter you know how the how the rafter tail should end and the gutter details should begin and the roof and so they'll take the default and of course you know that default may make that that rafter split because it's exposed um, because it's exposed with a really acute angle on it but but the, the a student doesn't even know to think about, you know, that they may, maybe that, you know, maybe that rafter is, is, uh, is taken down at a 90 degree angle to the rafter instead of 90, you know, instead of vertically. So there's that, um, uh, issue as well is that, you know, the, the, you get weak work when you, when you tell students to design. And frankly, that's true in the profession too. I mean, when I'm king, there's going to be a requirement to that every, every architecture project should have to start with a physical model made of at least cardboard chipboard something um because there is a um there is a there is an element to there is an element to designing in in the softwares that we have right now anyway most of them where you're designing and plan and you're extruding up and so you wind up with these kind of plan-centered plan-centered uh projects that in reality most of the experience of being in a building is really not related to plan plan's actually quite boring uh, plan's great for telling a contractor where to put things, but, um, and, you know, the, our buildings go up very much in plan, but the way we experience buildings is much more in elevation and overhead plane and, and spatial and haptic qualities and sectional qualities and so forth. So, um, so, you know, you can, you can spot a, you can, you can spot a, a Revit, a Revit project from a million miles away within the academy. Number three, we're generally, uh, angled toward, and I think our, our highest use is, is kind of train if we're insofar as we're training people for the practice is probably for people between the the fifth and the 15th year of practice. So the first five years is, is time to kind of, you know, learn code, learn how to be a professional, uh, learn the software, um, uh, learn the, you know, learn the different, you know, what goes into a drawing set and so forth. But years five through 15, you're making decisions about, about space and form and light and uh, materiality and durability and so forth. Um, and that's really where we're best at. And then, you know, maybe after year 15, you're spending a lot of your time in meetings with clients or, you know, doing business development or, or, you know, contracts or something like that. So, so our, our highest use is in, is in that middle, is in that middle section of a career. I don't remember what I said for number four. (laughs) I don't remember either, but it, it doesn't really matter at this point. Like there's, there are a lot of reasons why it doesn't make sense. Yeah. No, I remember what the fourth one I told you was. So I have had on multiple occasions and I can go through the specifics uh, um, if, if there's time for that, but where I've, where I've talked to students, I mean, I had a situation here, let me tell you a story. So I had a situation in 2009, I took my students to Raleigh and we visited a student who graduated the year before and um, at her firm. And uh, she worked at a fairly large firm and it was 2009. So everyone was getting laid off. And I kind of pulled her aside during the tour and I said, are you, are you in danger of being laid off? And uh, her name is Chelsea. Chelsea said, no, are you kidding? I'll be the last person they lay off. I know Revit better than anyone else here. And it floored me because a year earlier, she had never used anything digitally. Her entire, her, I was her, her, her thesis advisor. I worked with her for a full year. I never saw her open a computer. She only hand drew everything. She hand drew everything. And um, I said, but, I thought, you know, but you were the Luddite, you were the one who didn't use any technology. And she said, yeah, exactly. So when I came here, when there was a project due and it was, and everyone was under the gun for the deadline, everyone who knew AutoCAD just went back to AutoCAD, but I didn't know AutoCAD or Revit. So I had to learn one or the other. I obviously was going to learn Revit. That's where everyone, everything was going. 
So now I'm the Revit, Revit expert in the firm. Same thing happened a year later. I took the students to New York. Same exact situation uh, with a student who hadn't done anything digital. And he was as the KPF. He was the digital maven at KPF. Two years ago, two years earlier, he hadn't done a bit of digital work on his, on his full-year thesis. Not a bit. It was all hand-drawn. And, um, and it was because he went there and he knew how to use Rhino and he knew how to uh, he had learned all that stuff because he had to learn something. And so he learned the latest. So if we were to be training people uh, for the latest, then they wouldn't learn the latest by the time everything came, you know, by the time they came into the workforce. anyway. Yeah, I, that that's uh, totally on point with I think, where I was going to go with that, too, because there there is this idea that that schools should be preparing people for practice. And to all of your points technology or specific programs probably aren't the right answer to that. Like students can learn what they need to for each project that they do. And th that could be a different recipe depending on what they're doing, right? I mean, not every software, even though this is how it kind of plays out, is good at everything, right? Like some soft, like certain programs are, are better for certain verticals in architecture than others. But a lot of these programs try to be everything to everyone. And therefore, to your point, you can kind of tell what what software that building was designed in because of how it looks, right? A lot of times, but but to to kind of go beyond that, when you talk about what a firm actually wants from students, it's crazy to me that the first question is what software do you know, right? Because that's where they want to plug them in as a you know fresh designer that's entering the profession is just being an operator of some said program that they happen to use. To, but the the why that's crazy is because like if they do know a software particularly well, I guarantee you it's not to the standards that the firm has if they have standards, right? So, I mean, there's a caveat there, but larger firms definitely have standards and smaller ones probably don't. It's more Wild West, but I would say even in, in larger firms, it's still pretty Wild West. And And if you throw a student in there with basically YouTube experience of learning software, they're going to bring all kinds of bad habits into your firm. And it, it, it just, it doesn't make sense to be for that to be the first question. Right. And I think it, a lot of times it is first question, unless it's like a very specific role for something else like design, maybe they don't care as much. And to your point, students beyond everybody else who's already in the firm can learn that stuff faster than anybody else. Like they're in so capable of, of learning things quickly at, especially at that stage of their career, that it makes sense to plug them in at that point to either learn the ways of the firm or to learn the latest, greatest, or where the firm is going. Of course, I mean, the, the, if you you know if 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 you listener were to kind of close your eyes and think of the people in your firm, you would recognize that that great people are more than ten times better than good people. Like in terms of in terms of the value to the firm, and one great person is just so much more valuable than 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 three or four good people. And so, the idea that we're gonna that we ought to be drafting, you know, I'm a sports fan, and the idea that we ought to be drafting for position and not for talent, I say get the best person, get the best person, period, and then coach them up, and then who who cares what position they play? You just want the best person, and uh, I think it's actually quite quite myopic to think that, you know, it's just so looking forward to like the next six months and not to the next two, three years to say, we want someone who knows this software and then plug them in when maybe there's a better person who does not know that software. You get the staff you deserve. If, if your goal is to get people who are experienced, you get the staff you deserve. You're no better than the, than the government, you know, in the eighties when they used to decide who 
designed a federal building based on how many other federal buildings they had designed. <laughs> there's, there's, there, there's no, there's no, there's no logic to that. I mean, so that's the first problem with that approach. The second problem, like you identified is what you identified is that the students will learn it much, much quicker than you would anyway. <laughs> so quick at learning this stuff. It's not even funny. And they're so patient at it too. Like they will just sit down and go through a hundred YouTube videos and, you know, in a way that people who are mid-career just, are, just don't have the patience for. And then, the third thing is that, you know, the, the, there's this kind of lamenting that I keep hearing as recently as yesterday, I had, I had a review in my studio and I was talking with um, some people from a firm and they were lamenting that they can't get people. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to start quizzing them. I often do this, but I, yeah, I realize that doesn't, doesn't go over well with people. But what I wanted to say, you know, so I just said, you know, I hear that a lot that people can't, you know, they just can't get people right now. But when I tell people in other professions that none of my students this year or last year or the year before have been flown out for a job interview, much less put up in a hotel room, much less taken out to dinner or lunch. They're, they don't believe me. And they're like, of course they do. If they're, you know, but, oh, there must be a glut. No, there's not a glut. There's a shortage of people. Well, if there's a shortage of people, why wouldn't they treat them well? When they, they don't think they have to because there's always been too many architects. And so there's this tradition of like, well, I'm really busy with my work. I will interview you, but I'm going to make it clear to you incoming person who's coming for an interview i'm going to make it clear to you that i'm really busy and that you're kind of a um you're kind of ruining my day because i have a big deadline due and i'm not i'm going to send you i'm going to go through this process as quickly as possible and then i'm not going to take you so much to coffee or lunch i'm not going to i'm going to introduce you to other people in the office but in the most cursory way i'm not going to you know bring them with us to coffee or lunch because that would take their time away from their real job and then and then i'm you know and I'm, I'm going to expect you to get out here on your own dime and i'm not going to bring you know, if you're most businesses of any size, they'll bring a whole cohort out at once, 20 of them, and they'll put them up in the same hotel room and they'll take them out to dinner together to say, look, you guys are going to be a team working together. Imagine if we can get all of you here. We can, the fun that we just had last night in the, you know, at dinner and, and going out for drinks afterward, we could be doing that all the time. And all that is lost on the, on the tradition of hiring an architecture. And so if you're going to be sh- to the, to the students, then of course you're going to have a hard time getting students. I have no faith, no sympathy at all for the firms that are having trouble getting, getting, uh, getting talent. I, I agree. And I think it, the, the way I think about it is they're treated like an expense from day one. And I think all, anytime talent is treated like, like an expense rather than an investment, because those, those, that talent is actually going to make you money. It's not going to cost you money. I mean, people look at this as a salary expense and and they are going to be the fuel for your business, right? They are the ones who are going to set your business apart. That's a really good point, Evan, because that's a totally good point because they are, you know, you're not hiring a marketing person where it's hard to attribute their, their work to exactly which, you know, which client you got. And they're not a, you know, they're not a HR person or something like that. We're talking about the people you're actually billing, right? So they're billing out at whatever, and, you know, 120 bucks an hour. And so if you, if they're good, why would you, oh, that's a really good point. They're a, they're a profit center. They're not an expense. Totally, totally are. But I, the, 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 the profession doesn't look at it like that. Mm-hmm. Let's take a quick break to share more about our sponsors. My friends, I've got a new chapter in the Avail story to tell you about, and that is the newly released version of Avail Desktop 4.3. The people behind Avail continually strive to make things easier for you. Easier to find the information you're looking for, easier to get it into your preferred application, and easier to store it in your preferred cloud storage locations. Let's face it, I think we can all agree that easier is better. But they didn't stop there. 
They also care about what your experience is like. So, as always, they've kept their focus on visuals with an eye toward design and ease of use. You're probably dying to hear the details of what's new. Well, who am I to get in the way? So let's get right to it. Avail Desktop 4.3 will now feel like your own custom app thanks to key cards. Key cards are data-driven and create zippy new visual ways of organizing your existing content. Think of them like pivot tables for your content. Join the Avail Desktop 4.3 party in BYOS or bring your own storage. Now you can store and deliver your content using Autodesk's BIM 360, Microsoft's OneDrive, Microsoft SharePoint, Google Drive, Dropbox, Ignite, and others. Avail's new Dynamic Paths feature also solves the problem of accessing content using desktop connectors like Autodesk Desktop Connector. Try it today. Either bug your admin to update your installation for all the new goodies, or if you aren't currently using Avail, go to getavail.com today to learn more. That's getavail.com. And now let's get back to our conversation. What's crazy, there's an, this endless supply of people at the door who will come, who are standing in line for this mistreatment <laughs> that you're talking about. And at the same time, there's not enough people. I can't hire any. Why can't I hire anybody? And it's like, there's this super weird disconnect happening in the profession. And that, I think this is why we see so many graduates and, and young emerging professionals actually going into adjacent fields rather than because they see the the miserable leaders in our in our profession we're like i don't want to turn out like that i don't want to be fighting for less fee on the next project i mean that that's not a sustainable business is that business even going to be here in 10 or 20 years i'm going to go somewhere else where the hours are better the treatment is better i get to work from wherever i want etc they're not location based. There's so many other perks. And, and I just see a lot of that happening, especially with technology, right? People are moving into these tech fields because there's decent boundaries. There's work-life balance. They're solving interesting problems. They're moving at a fast pace. I mean, think about an architecture professional. It takes five years to do a building. You've experienced every design phase exactly one time after five years, and then you get to do it again. Why does it take so long to climb a corporate ladder? Why does it take so long to become an architect? Well, there's, I mean, that's what it is. And you have to have a lot of patience and a lot of passion to, and patience and passion, not only for the profession and your own career, but for the people you work with and the, the, fir- the leadership. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more, especially with your point about, you know, kind of, I forgot what words you use, but giving meaning. Uh, to, to these people. And so there's a, you know, there's a long time problem where the folks who are, the, again, there's probably that five to 15 year people that we're training them for, they hold on to those decisions. They're really, people are really stingy with the design making process and they don't want to give it to a new person and they want to use, use the new person for their technical abilities and, and their speed at, at using software. That's really unfortunate because a lot of the people that, you know, I see coming through, they're amazing. You know, they need to be given from day one design responsibilities. And, you know, and when they are given design responsibilities, they need to be protected from that dude in the firm. It's always a dude. It's always some old guy who's like, that won't be code. 
And they don't tell you, they don't tell the new person why it won't meet code. They don't, they don't sit them down and kind of like mentor them. Like, okay, this will not meet code because let me explain to you what's happening. This is a mezzanine, but it's more than a third of the, you know, whatever. They don't get into that. They just say that won't meet code and it just makes them feel stupid. Of course they don't know what, if it'll meet, meet code. That's, that's the, that's the senior person's job is to help them take their design. If it's a good design, help them take it and see if you can try to get, you know, capture some of what they've done and still meet code. But there's this kind of belief that, um, uh, there's this stinginess. There's this kind of pull up the ladder from behind you uh, once you get to the top. It's architectural mansplaining, and 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 you're right. It it happens because they're instead of mentoring, they're protecting their position of superiority and and their you know their lock on their position in the firm. If their status, if if I give away this information, you might replace me. Like it's not. I don't think those are conscious choices, but I think they are subconscious choices, and it's kind of lizard brain type stuff. But the truth is that because of technology, and I know this is such a cliche, but because of technology, the the people who are coming through now can just do it so much better than the previous generations at their level. Um, and so if you empower them and they have the, the, the lever that is the technology to amplify what they're doing, I just can't imagine that from a business point of view, that's a bad idea. Yeah, from a, you know, from a stat, from an office status point of view, that may be a bad idea. And you hear people complain all the time, oh, the millennials now, they, you know, they expect a lot. Yeah, because they're more valuable <laughs> than they were, you know, 20 years ago. They're more valuable to the world, to your firm, because they're better than you were. And for a given hour, they can just do more. Um, they can, they don't have to jump on an airplane. They can jump on a Zoom meeting. There's, you know, they, they don't have to look it up in architectural graphic standards. They can look it up in Google. I, they can just do more than you can. And so, yeah, they should, they, they have a value that's higher. And by the way, you're, you know, all those ads for people with three years experience, they can go and after three years, they can go to another firm and get more money. To your point about, you know, that, that, that dude who is saying, you know, that's, that's never going to work. That don't, that won't pass code. And then not explaining why I think, you know, something that, that I see there a lot in firms with those kinds of people is, is it's the fault of the younger person for not knowing what they don't know. And that to me makes zero sense because that's a flip of, of the educational system, the educational system. There's all kinds of grace and there's all kinds of not always. I won't, I, it's not, there's no grace in a lot of the, the final presentations with the jury, right? Who steps in, who hasn't been through the whole process with them, who is judging it with that, that first time they're seeing it. And they're saying, well, why didn't you do this? Like, obviously, students get some experience in this along the way. But again, like, for the most part, the educational system is like, it's a fostering of here's how we do it. Here's why we do it like this. Here are the things you should be thinking of. And can we cover it all? Nope, we can't. And then when you get become a graduate and you go into a firm and you don't know what you don't know and somebody's blaming you for that without taking the responsibility to further the education, because we all know that it takes a long time to become an architect, period. It takes longer than the five years in school, period. It doesn't matter if you're licensed or not, right? If you if you get licensed right out of school, does that make you a great architect? No way. Would I want you designing my building? Probably not. But at the same time, like that isn't the marker of, you know, everything now. Right. And so the, most people take a long time to become licensed. And it is this continual learning process of being an architect. I, I wish that that was just more accepted by those dudes out there who just complain about people and do nothing about educating them to get them to the next level, to get them to become their own replacement. 
I mean, we see so many positions in firms where there is no one in the pipeline because of people like that. They've never tried to make that job interesting or exciting or anything because like specifications is a good example, right? Who wants to become a specifier as an architectural graduate? Raise your hands. Like the whole, nobody in the audience is raising their hands. I don't see any, any hands going up. And it's like, what are you going to, what are we doing about that as a profession? Right. And it's probably that crotchety dude in the corner who doesn't like talking to people, you know, for the most part, I'm generalizing, but that's not true for everybody. So don't get the wrong idea, but I don't know, a little bit of a rant there, but I think, you know, we we do eat our young and, and there's not a, a high intention to get people to the next spot and, and teach them what they don't know along the way. I think I think most of us have the gold, the memory of a goldfish, and don't remember what it was like not to know. And they say, "Oh, you know, you didn't learn that at your other firm, or you didn't learn that in school." And man, I, twelve years ago, I was the program chair of the set. Well, I, I would I did that for like four years, but twelve years ago, as the program chair here at here at Virginia Tech, um, I had a. It was it's the end of the fall semester, and I. I booked two meetings. I said, okay, we're going to, there's a, there's an Indian restaurant buffet uh, around the corner. And so I said, okay, we're going to, I told the second year faculty, we're going to meet, we're going to meet, um, uh, we're going to meet at 11 to 12 and we'll talk about the semester and kind of, I, I wanted to talk only about big picture ideas. Cause you know, you get all involved in like, you know, where's the extension cord? Like so much of the, so much of day to day becomes that. I said, I don't want to talk about any, any logistics, I just, I just want to talk about kind of, you know, broad strategies and, and big ideas. And then I, I booked, so 11 to 12 was them. And I just stayed there at the buffet. It's good to have a big appetite. And then, and then from 12 to one, I met with the, the third year faculty. And so the entire conversation with the second year faculty is, listen, we could do our job so much better if you talk to the first year faculty and you told them how to, you know, how to do line weight and how to do a plan and, you know, that, you know, how to understand how, how an elevation works and so forth. Right. I'm like, okay, I'm taking notes. Right. I'm like, all right, talk to first year faculty. And then I get sit down, you know, where this is going. I sit down with the third year faculty who, who, you know, populate the same seats uh, an hour later. And they're like, man, we could do our job so much better if the second year faculty could actually teach them how to, you know, how to say the building and, you know, and, and uh, um, you know, kind of how a structural part T works and so forth. And so, so everyone has this kind of inclination. Everyone has a everyone has a romantic and completely misremembered idea of when they learn certain things. And even if they remember that, oh, when I graduated from school, I knew that for sure. Sure, okay, maybe you knew that better than the next generation, but you didn't know this, and they know this. You don't know what they know that you don't know. You know that's ridiculous. Yeah, it would never be a two way conversation. Right, right, exactly. So hire smart people and give them authority and leave them alone to do a good job. And if they're, and frankly, if they're not doing a good job, fire them, please. Like, you know, we don't need any bad people in our profession. Let's, let's get rid of the ones. People are way, way, way too slow to fire people who are not good. And they're way, way too interested in hiring people based on their experience instead of based on their drive and talent and smarts. Yeah, that's a, yeah, those are two very different intentions. So this idea of it's always somebody else's fault. I think that does come up a lot. It comes up a lot. I mean, not only between those years of education, but also in practice as well. It's like, how come somebody else didn't prepare them for, for what we do? And, and meanwhile, they're not preparing anybody <laughs> for what they do. And it, it is somebody else's fault. Yeah. Not my job. And I, I see that all the time. So yeah, I think it's important to have mentors who are younger than you. I have my, many of my mentors are younger than me. Mm. I think it's important. They know stuff I don't know. Yeah, that's a, that's that's cool. 
So, so, I mean, you have, I don't know, let's call it a luxurious position of teaching young people. I do. It it is the best job. It's the best job. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, I mean, and that's, I I see why people want to be teachers. I mean, yeah, those ideas are flowing and that, that is, that's a great spot to be for sure. So tell us about your work and what you're doing with, with Amber book and what that, as far as licensure goes and preparing people for licensure, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are kind of big picture on licensure, preparing people for that, what that kind of rite of passage is like for, for emerging professionals today. Yeah. So the, uh, Amber book is a, a visual animated, um, it's not a book, it's a course. It, it does have a book. It comes with a 375 page illustrated book, but it's a course for folks who are, uh, uh studying licensure and and uh, and trying to to work their way specifically through the six ARE exams. It's an animated course. We've spent over a million dollars on animation uh, to make it so that architects, in particular, but really anyone, you know, everyone's a visual learner, right? I mean, this idea that architects are visual learners is very self-serving for us because we see ourselves that way. But I don't know anyone who ever looked at a graph and said, "Can you please put that back in the table form? I just want to see rows and columns of numbers." Um, so, so the idea is that, is that, um, is that we want to, you know, we want to have authentic and visual and, uh, uh, ownership of content. And we want to have long-term recall, recall of that content over time. Uh, we very much teach to the test. Um, we're, we're not shy about that. We, we aim to be the, the quickest path to licensure and the, you know, kind of the high, highest likelihood to passing the exam in the, in the least amount of time studying, but our super secret plan is to make better buildings. Uh, we don't. Uh, tell people that because people don't want a vitamin; they want a they want a painkiller. Uh, so we provide the painkiller, but um, uh, but we try to make it um, we try to make it useful for their career also, even though we do teach to the test. That's interesting. So I, I assume this t- this ties a lot into your your teaching building science at Virginia Tech as well. Yeah, I mean it's a separate consulting gig, and frankly, most of the not most one hundred percent of the benefit goes from Amber Book to Virginia Tech, not the other way around. <laughs> I'm very careful about. I'm in my Amberbook office right now. I don't. I, I'm on my Amberbook computer. Um, I try not to mix them, but I do provide. I do provide Virginia Tech students with the Amberbook for free as a as a um, uh, as a course textbook. You know, the, the videos are free as it's a course textbook, and and um, uh, and I use it for. I mean, not just for me, for all the faculty, and and um, and I've gotten the opportunity to kind of get much closer to the profession in terms of, you know, helping my students get jobs and, and just kind of understanding when you said, you know, uh, when you were talking about authority, having jurisdiction, I know what you're talking about, not because of my work at, at Virginia tech, but because of my work at Amber book. And so I can bring those ideas back, back into the academy. I can bring the ideas from the profession into the academy, but, um, Oh, it's so much fun. So you, it's so you, much fun. You said you, you said you teach to the test and I'm just wondering about your thoughts about licensure in general then, because like your super secret is to get architects to be able to build or design better buildings. And yet you are teaching to this test. (laughs) Right. So I I know there's a, a disconnect there. Right. Of course. Right. So, I mean, so what we do is, so when I say we teach to the test, what I mean is we're, we're, you know, we've all. Just about everyone here has taken the test or is taking the test. You know, if you call Amber Book for customer service, you get architects. These are the, you get people who graduate from architecture school are either taking the test or have passed them all. Um, if you, uh, uh, and those are the same people who are making the content. They're animators also. And they're, and so they're taking the test or animating the concept. So we're covering the concepts that are relevant to the exam. 
Uh, and that's what I mean by we're teaching to the test. We're not, uh, we're not covering, uh, we're not covering topics generally that are, we're not covering them in depth. Uh, and when we are, we're saying you can skip this if you're in a hurry, right? So for instance, uh, from an energy point of view, air tightness is extraordinarily important in a building. Uh, a leak, you know, you're in California, right? So it's not as big a deal for you, but for the, you know, people who live in normal places, <laughs> where, where it's human outside or it's freezing outside, um, people who, you know, who don't live in places that are magical like that, um, uh, it's really important how much air leaks in. And it is not unusual for one, you know, you can do a building here in, in the mountains, uh, in the cold mountains. You can do a, a building in a cold climate that is 20 times less leaky than my building. So that's not unusual. The different, you know, it is, if, if we both, if, if we both insulate our buildings, you know, mine may be 20% more insulated, but my, but yours may be 20 times less leaky. And so, uh, it's a huge deal and it requires detailing and an understanding of construction supervision and, and, uh, and an understanding of how products work and especially how the seams of buildings work, um, to make this work and, uh, you know, to, to make a building airtight. Well, the exam doesn't know that yet. And so we will cover that stuff, but, um, but we don't cover it as much as insulation because the exam knows about insulation. And so we will overcover things that are on the exam. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, the exam is, you know, the exam is not aligned with, in my opinion, uh, uh, my exam is not well aligned with what an architect should know. And, and you may disagree with me on this one, but the exam is way overweighted towards pro practice. I mean, way overweighted. The idea that 50% of the questions you're going to find on the exam are pro practice is insane, um, especially because they're only asking about the same 100 topics over and over again. So how many times can you ask someone, you know, a, te- a question to see whether or not they know not to talk to the mason, you know, as an architect to tell the mason, you know, how much water to add to their mix? Like, there's only so many ways you can ask that. Just ask it once and that's enough. And so, you know, and if you, you know, if you, and people will say, oh, well, you know, as a, to protect the life, you know, the, 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 the life safety and welfare of the public, we need to be able to understand these things, these kind of, you know, uh, deliver, you know, project delivery methods. And that's bullshit. I mean, the, the physicians aren't tested on, on how to bill, uh, on how to bill, um, for their license or not tested on how to bill, uh, um, uh, insurance companies, even though that's a lot of their work. And so the argument has always been and adding all this pro practice has been, well, we're spending a lot of, we as architects are spending a lot of time understanding contracts. So, so because I'm spending a lot of time doing that in my day to day, I think that architects ought to know that. That's like, to me, that's like a, uh, that's like a, um, a pilot saying, why do I have to spend so much time learning about takeoffs and landings when I'm spending most of the time at 35,000 feet? And the, the answer is, of course, because we are, we ought to be tested on not what we're doing the most of. We ought to be tested on what is the most important things we're doing, the things that give us value. And the fact that we know contracts or that we know the types of delivery, you know, to the extent that we do, I'm not saying it shouldn't be any part of the exam, but maybe 90-10 or 85-15, not 50-50. This is crazy to me. And this is something that NCARB has done intentionally. They have intentionally... Uh, brought this stuff forward. And so, okay, so, you know, so we'll cover more on AHJs and and we'll cover more on, uh, you know, on what a mezzanine, you know, what constitutes a mezzanine or whatever, because that's what's going to be on the exam. Um, but we, we're most excited about, uh, about, you know, how do you get your design intent out without having to worry about the code or the materiality or, you know, how do you make something that's beautiful now, but also beautiful in like 20 years? Like, you know, how, you know, if we're talking about Warping, you know, if it's going to warp, let's talk about it now so we can understand it. Yeah. And how it can make an impact uh, in, in the positive 
for the future of not only the profession, but the communities that those projects end up in, right? Like, like be thinking beyond the, the phases, the earliest phases of a project that an architect's involved in, and then what, right? And it's like, okay, next project, right? That, that's how architects are trained. That's how they actually do it. But it, to increase the lifespan or the, 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 the long view of the architect, it, it has to happen everywhere. It has to happen in education. It has to happen during licensure as well. And it has to happen during practice. That is a, that's a tough shift to make. Yeah. So how would you do it? If you were, if you were, let me, let me flip the know. microphone around. <laughs> as someone with a, with a P practice background, it? like how would you do that? I think, well, I think that there's a, a larger uh, pressure. I think Spark speak, spoke about pressure earlier from, from various individuals, but there is a larger pressure to go deeper into everything now. And I'm not sure because to me, the answer cannot always be do more. I don't, I don't see how that's possible. Um, so, so there is more pressure to know a lot. Wait, hold on, hold on. You mean the ar- the architect do more to learn, or the architect do more to design, or or something else? It's 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 everything. It's to learn about all. So, so I, I recently attended a lecture by Phil Bernstein online, online and it was ta- he was talking about uh, slavery in material manufacturing, right? And so there's kind of this idea that the architect, by making a decision to use zinc paneling on a project, is basically ensuring that slavery happens, right? Uh, and not knowing, right? Again, no fault. They don't know what they don't know. We don't know what we don't know. But that is what is actually happening in the world. So now it's like, how can we, how can we know things like that? How can we go deeper to understand these bigger things that are going on environmentally, right? Energy, slavery, material production, red listing, all of these things, right? Like you, you even said it, like like their passive house. How how can you go deeper? in all of these slots as an architect is the answer always do more i don't know what that answer is because i don't see how any one of the systems in the way that they're set up now enable us to be better at any of this in the future like we've got contracts we've got insurance we've got legal we've got uh, ahj's codes every state has a different energy code every jurisdiction has a different energy code I mean, it's 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 kind of crazy making to think like again, how did these projects even ever get done? I don't know the answer how that 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 happens, but these are all real pressures on an architect. And so, you know, there's that famous quote by Buckminster Fuller, which I don't have up in front of me, but it's like you can't fix what's already there; you have to like make it obsolete by inventing a new way to do it. And and so I I don't know who's willing to roll up their sleeves to make the new way to do it? Well, maybe this is back to our conversation a little while ago where we were talking about, um, you know, if, if BIM knows that you're putting zinc, then maybe Clippy, you remember Clippy from Microsoft Word, the little paper yeah. clip that would come in and make yep. suggestions, right? Maybe Clippy says, uh, we support zinc, but you should know that if you do zinc, you're promoting slavery. <laughs> no, it's like, this would be the kind, I mean, this is a great, you know, not to be a, not to be an unapologetic techno optimist, but you know, this is a great role for technology because then, then, you know, then one person doesn't have to know it all. When, if, if you're telling the, if you're telling the software what the material is and the material ought to, then they'd ought to give you an ESG back. Like your, you know, one of your more recent podcasts was talking about that aspect. Well, that absolutely is true. And I think, you know, Phil was, was a big part of the development at Autodesk of kind of the big ideas of what BIM could or should be. And you talked about earlier how it took a long time to start delivering on those promises. 
But that is exactly what the kind of thing that we're talking about here is like if you can tie all of these systems together and these knowledge, all this knowledge together from the disparate sources into the one thing that can then proactively alert you to some of the implications of the decisions that you're making at whatever stage that is along the process, that is a huge benefit. Because then once you know, even if you're not the person to make a decision about it, you can raise that up in conversation with the owner, right? Which is one of Phil's points. Like, you think that this makes the most sense for X, Y, Z reasons. Now let's have a conversation about it so that everybody knows what's involved in making this decision. Maybe it's not everything, but it's a lot of, it's, it's deeper than, than the surface, which we scratch right now. That's our goal, man. Let's get deeper than the surface that we scratch. Now I'm going to put that on a (laughs) t-shirt or that should be on every, everyone's diploma. So, so how are you, I mean, you're, you're alluding to it, but maybe you could be more specific. How are you actually getting the architects educated to design better buildings? In terms of the practicing architects, um, it's a matter of uh, technical competence is a huge part of it. So just kind of, you know, there's a lot to understand uh, in architecture. And so um, uh, uh, um, covering technical competence in a way that's digestible and fun um, and easy to understand and memorable. That's a big part of it. That includes, but not limited to low energy buildings, um, uh, well daylit buildings, uh, quiet buildings where they need to be quiet and, you know, uh, reverberant buildings where they need to be reverberant and so forth. I didn't set out to do this, but I, I do feel like there has been just from kind of talking to people. I do feel like in some people who, who take the, take the course, take the Amber book course, there's an awakened curiosity um, that goes beyond what they're learning in the course. So, you know, people will say, you know, I'm starting to do what you do and pull over at all the construction sites and, you know, and, and break in the way you break in and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, uh, you know, and, and just kind of being aware to kind of see, you know, okay, this is the smoke baffle. This is a, you know, Oh, that's why they did this. Just so, you know, one of the things that we have and anyone, you know, any architect who's ever traveled with a, with a partner who's not an architect can attest the partner who's not an architect you know, cause there's a lot of kind of bitching and moaning about what, it, you know, all the crap that an architect has to deal with, but there's some amazing things that we should probably point out too. Right. So one is I would think that if I wasn't an architect, traveling with an architect is the most fun thing ever, unless you don't want to be stuck in the same building for, you know, an hour and a half while they sketch it. But I mean, if you, if you have the independent wherewithal to be able to leave that architect, if there's an understanding that, you know, when they start sketching, you can leave for a few hours and go to a cafe. Um, I, I think it's amazing because the world is our field trip. And so just the idea that we can kind of go out there and not just the beautiful buildings, but the ugly ones too. Like, okay, that building is ugly. Why is it ugly? It's ugly because it's striped. Why is it striped? Because there's spandrel glass, spandrel glass that looks nothing like the other glass. Okay. Like I'll have to remember that. And next time I talk to, next time I talk to my glass guy, and this goes to your day job at tech, next time I talk to my glass guy, I need to make sure that I understand how to make my curtain wall not look striped. And so I think that there's a, there's a lot to be learned from this shitty stuff too. Um, but there's a, but, but, you know, just kind of actually just being able to travel and go to a theater and, you know, oh, this is a, you know, oh, this is a, you know, even if you don't know a lot about architectural history, you can just start like lapping it up. Look what they did, you know? And so, you know, I, I think, um, I think being an architect, you know, I think that, that frankly, I think architects complain a little too much. I think it's really awesome. Like we're not, you can leave the profession and you don't, you don't have to stay. You can get more money and work more normal hours as a, as a rep for a window 
manufacturer and that's fine. Um, but you're making a choice to be, to, you know, to kind of be in the mix and, um, and just because architects are golden retrievers and so happy to have, you know, be given the right to help out in a building and just happy to take whatever fee we can, I think, yeah, that sucks. And we need to change that for sure. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not just the best profession. And, and, and yeah, it takes five years to get a building done, but it takes 75 years before it comes down. Like, I guess amazing, right? The software that you were comparing it to, that's going to be obvious with good decisions. The software that you're comparing it to is amazing because you can get it done probably quicker, but software takes a while too. And, and then you have to support it. You know, after you're done with a building, you don't have to answer questions for it and, and you don't have to make updates for it and protect it from hackers. And then it's up to obsolete in four years. And, or if, you know, if you're lucky. And so, um, so what an amazing thing to be in this profession. What a very cool thing. And there is, frankly, in some parts of the country, not all, uh, there is a cool factor too. There is a status role that architects play and people are happy to, you know, invite an architect to a dinner party. I think we're like the best people to have around. And so I, I, I am very bullish on architecture. I am, I am bearish on, on, um, on commodity architecture. I don't think that there's a place for it because, uh, because it will be shipped overseas if, if folks in the Philippines, if, if you're not bringing design to the table, I mean, design, capital D, I mean, all the things that, that your, your professors told you about, you know, you could have said, I think there was a time 30 years ago where you could have mumbled to yourself, yeah, this professor who's all into design, I'm not into design. Once I get in practice, it won't be all about design. It'll be okay. That may have been true before. Um, but if someone in the Philippines can draw it, um, then you're going to have firms, and you're already seeing this, where there's five people in the U.S. and 50 in the Philippines, who are in the five in the U.S. are meeting the clients, and the 50 in the Philippines are doing the design work, and the five in the U.S. are kind of you know stamping the drawings. And um, I don't see a place for you if you don't love design, if you're not into this profession. Um, there's not good money in it, and there's not going to be a place for you anyway uh, in in a few years because um, it'll be outsourced. I think. Hope I'm wrong. There's there's the idea of commodity buildings, right? But then there's also the idea of commodity tasks inside an architecture firm too. That automation should be vacuuming up because those jobs aren't going to be things that we sh- they shouldn't be things that we're competing on anyway, right? We if we can't compete with the Philippines, we can't compete with a machine either, right? That's going to be able to do it faster better than more accurately than we could do it and and i just think again like this reinforces your point of of like this kind of design that's where the value of an architect actually is is in that the ability to have those ideas synthesize those thoughts into reality take something from like utter chaos right which is a a wicked design problem and make it into reality that right there is the value of an architect so do there need to be as many of us out there? I don't know that the answer is yes. I, I think. I mean, if there if there is if there is one single reason, and there is one single reason why architects are paid low relative to what most people think we're paid or what other professions are paid, is because there's ten percent too many of us. And so, anytime there's ten percent too many, the price plummets. We saw what happened, you know, when there's ten percent too too few after the pandemic, when there's ten percent too many during the pandemic, when there's ten percent too too many during the housing crisis excuse me, during the, the recession, there's 10% too many houses for sale in your neighborhood, then the price of your neighborhood doesn't go 10% down. It, the price of a price of a house in your neighborhood goes down, you know, 70% because, because it's a race to the bottom. And so as long as architects are seen, and rightly so, as Kleenex, where you pull one out and there's another one there, I don't think it's incumbent upon 
I don't think it's incumbent upon the architects to to do something to necessarily add value. I think, frankly, we ought to do what the uh, we ought to do what the uh, what the medic AMA does for doctors. The reason doctors are paid so high in America, not just relative to architects, but relative to doctors anywhere else in the world, is because the AMA limits the number of they control the number of arc, of uh, of uh, of uh, 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 slots in medical schools. And so, if the AIA wanted to control the number of slots in architecture schools, the way the AMA controls the number of slots in medical schools, then architects would likely be paid what doctors are paid, or certainly way more than they're paid now. But the idea that we're doing so, we as a profession are doing something wrong because we're uh, because we're because we're not valuing ourselves or something like that. I mean, there's probably some truth to that. Um, because we are golden retrievers who are just so happy to be part of the project that we don't, you know, we're, we work, we do it for free. <laughs> um, but, but that's part of it. Um, uh, but that's because the job is cool. Like it's a fun job, but the, um, but the, 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 it's ignoring the market forces involved and, and the fact that there's, uh, that there, I don't know, I made up that number 10%. I don't know if there's 5% or 20% too many, but there's definitely, there are definitely far too many architects. Uh, relative to, the, I mean, right now things are good, and it's been like that for twelve years. But you know, there's no reason to think it'll be like that forever. There's actually a lot of reason to think it won't yeah, be like re- that forever. Right, right. I, the the f- there, there's two questions that I ask, and it, it might be just two versions of the same question. But it's like, what do we owe the future of this profession? Like, do we want it to? You know, the, the other question is, does it deserve to exist? And so what are people who are in practice now working with licensure, working with education, doing to prepare for that future rather than the jobs that we've had before, right? There, there's got to be something that says, like, we are valuable. We have, we have to decide that for ourselves before anybody else will do it for us or to us, right? So what are we doing to make sure that that happens? And I don't see, I don't see a lot of action. Like you said, this is the coolest job in the world. We should freaking act like it right like this this if it if it really is we should act like it and 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 yet like most of the things that i see architects do is complaining about the way things are and yet here we are responsible for that exact same thing yeah for sure i mean the the other thing that's kind of you know the the 300 pound gorilla that's there that could totally upend everything is there may be a time when building a building is seen in the same way as buying a hummer um, in terms of, you know, I mean, once the public figures out the, the carbon footprint of architecture and, uh, you know, the wild differences between one building and another, and I'm, and I'm not just talking about the stupid way we measure it right now, which is only to measure it on EUI or how much energy per square feet, because that's a little bit bogus because, um, maybe you don't need, maybe you don't need a new building or you need a building half the size, right? But architects are kind of sheepish about saying that because this is our, our livelihood. But when people figure out, um, when people figure out the, when the public, um, and it's happening in real time, when they figure out how much, uh, carbon our buildings are putting up there, um, you could imagine a scenario where people feel the same way about a new building that they feel about a new factory or about, you know, about a, uh, uh, you know, about some gas guzzling, you know, entity. It's, it's going to be interesting. I, I think we'll, I think we'll solve the, electricity grid problem before that happens it looks like i mean there's a huge change going on right now that probably many of your listeners are aware of um and so things are changing in in terms of our our energy is getting clean so it may not be an issue but um man uh um it almost it almost was a big issue we almost 
put ourselves out of business. You know how there's like uh, Twitter accounts for uh, there was there was somebody set up a, a robo a robot to automatically tweet when certain people were flying their their private planes all over the place to trace their carbon footprint. Oh, that's though, really interesting. Yeah, so so they're like you know they're legislators, they're lawmakers, whatever, and they're fighting against climate change and and you know putting these carbon laws into effect. And at the same time, they're doing like 200 flights a year, or you know, 40 flights a month or whatever, flying to all, all their different. So so it was just like pointing out the hypocrisy like i could totally see that for buildings right like some some student could just be like you know let's expose the hypocrisy so that we actually see some change in this industry and let's have all these buildings just self-report <laughs> whatever the, the the carbon emissions that are coming out in real time yeah and i'm really not looking for good corporate citizenship i want to see good corporate governance like i want to see rules because otherwise, whoever doesn't follow the rules wins, right? So, I mean, whoever doesn't follow the norms, it can't be a norm, right? If it's a norm, the person who doesn't follow the norm will, won't have to report their, their, their carbon. And so they're going to win because they're going to be able to do it cheaper. And, and, you know, they're going to be able to set the thermostat cooler in the summer and hotter in the winter and, you know, that kind of thing. I, there has to be, there has to be good governance. There has to be rules that everybody plays by because then there's a level playing field and, you know, every other time those rules have existed, that's when things change. Things don't change because people, you know, ought to do the right thing. We saw that with the pandemic. There's lots of things people ought to do. They never did it. But once, you know, but, but if there's, you know, but once, you know, so it's, you know, the things that have gotten us out of trouble before are making rules that are, that are smart and, and, and innovation and technology that gets us out of a hole. But, but expecting people to do the right thing or pointing out hypocrisy. I mean, Man, I'm an environmentalist. I, you know, I'm wearing a sweatshirt in here because I, I keep the thermostat way down. I usually, I, people make fun of me because I usually have my coat on uh, and a hat. Uh, so when I'm on a Zoom meeting, people make fun of me, and I'm, you know, I'm like, well, I just turned down the thermostat. But you know what? I, you know, I take I take really long hot showers, like you know, and so you know, so my colleagues are probably you know like, what the hell? You know, you're you say you're an environmentalist, you keep the thermostat, you make us all wear coats, and then you take a long hot showers, and 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 so. It's very difficult to find people who are consistent. And, and I'm all for inconsistent people making rules that, that once they're adopted, make, you know, or innovate, you know, or inconsistent people innovating or, or whoever innovating to, to fix these problems because they're really, really serious problems. And you will always find people, you will always find people who are, who are hypocrites. Like in any, in any, it doesn't mean in any movement, you know, and it doesn't mean the, it doesn't mean the movement is not. It doesn't mean the movement's not virtuous just because there's hypocrites involved. Is there anything that we missed that that we still no need to man cover we covered or, everything or, no we co- look we, we covered did. climate we covered how to solve climate change we we covered how to fix the whole profession we covered how to pass the exams we covered how to make beautiful buildings how to educate people there's literally I mean there's I can't think of anything important that we did not cover so no I think we're good podcasting gold this episode (laughs) that's right that's right (laughs) you're gonna have to go back and listen to it again (laughs) right well michael as always fantastic seeing you having this conversation so uh, i'm sure we'll talk again soon oh good to talk to you evan Thank you to Avail for their support of this podcast episode. Visit getavail.com to see their holistic approach to content management today.
This show is part of the Gabled Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gabledmedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.